walking in a country and I've been chasing after my shadow. Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 37. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. I remember it vividly. It was December 2001. I had been back home for nearly a month, following three months abroad in Europe. It had been my first trip abroad, and it was the sort of classic American tour of Europe, complete with the oversized backpack and Eurail pass. It was a formative experience. It was a great time. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That said, I had the funds socked away for one more big adventure in that year between college and work. And I knew I didn't want more of the same. Even at the end of that first trip, I was experiencing museum fatigue, and I certainly did not need to see another palace. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just following the guidebooks across Europe and trying to squeeze as much out of every day as I could. It somehow managed to be exciting and tedious and beautiful and superficial simultaneously. I'm still not quite sure how. Anyway, back in December 2001, I was scavenging around the still nascent internet looking for inspiration. I didn't know what I wanted, but I wanted something different. I found my way to a message board on Rick Steves' website. On there, I found a post someone had written extolling the virtues of a pilgrimage on the way of St. James. It was completely by chance. I'd never heard of such a thing. An embarrassing admission given that I'd taken a couple of medieval history and Christianity classes, and I'd actually paid attention, but it was immediately unquestionably certain that I'd found my second trip. I worked my way to the Confraternity of St. James website, which existed in early form, and quickly learned the basics. Then I ran out the door to make a quick trip to the bookstore, Half Price Books in Bellevue, Washington, if you're curious, and on those shelves, I found one relevant book. It wasn't specifically on the Camino, but rather on pilgrimage more generally. It was Phil Cousineau's The Art of Pilgrimage. I cracked the cover and read the opening paragraph of Houston Smith's foreword. Here it is. Quote, The object of pilgrimage is not rest and recreation, to get away from it all. To set out on a pilgrimage is to throw down a challenge to everyday life. Nothing matters now but this adventure. Travelers jostle each other to board the train, where they crowd together for a journey that may last several days. After that, there is a stony road to climb on foot, a rough, wild path in a landscape where everything is new. The naked glitter of the sacred mountain stirs the imagination. The adventure of self-conquest has begun. Specifics may differ, but the substance is always the same. Even now, those words inspire a surge of adrenaline. And then I actually got into the heart of Phil's book, devouring it in a single setting, emerging with even more clarity that I was really going to do this, that I, someone who had never hiked for more than seven or eight miles in a go, who'd never gone on a backpacking trip, was going to go walk 500 miles. Phil's book has been a presence in my life for nearly two decades now. And I know it has influenced the lives of many, many other pilgrims as well. I see it brought up all the time. As such, it was my pleasure to get to have a conversation with Phil, exploring some of the insights into pilgrimage that he has amassed from his extensive life experiences and research into the subject. 
Unlike most episodes in this podcast, there is no second guest. It's all Phil, all the time. I'd say that I hope you enjoy, but I have no doubt that you will. Phil Cousineau is a writer, teacher, editor, independent scholar, documentary filmmaker, travel leader, and storyteller. One of his many books, The Art of Pilgrimage, is a familiar work to many pilgrims. Indeed, it's an international bestseller in at least 10 languages, and remains a source of much dialogue between Phil and walkers and seekers around the world. And he joins me now for even more of that dialogue. Thanks for talking with me, Phil. Thank you, fellow pilgrim. <laughs> Let's take our first step on the journey. <laughs> Let's do it. You mentioned that this book really has gotten traction over the years. What do you think it is about the book that has resonated with so many readers? In 1997, I saw a, what's called a bullet point, I believe in the New York Times Sunday travel magazine. A brief two or three sentences that simply stated that within a few years, by the year 2000, the travel business was going to overcome the armaments industry and the computer industry and so on as the number one business in the world. And I thought that was pretty darn intriguing. I read another sentence and it said something that immediately caught me as a writer and a seeker of book ideas. And that was that the single biggest contributor, at least in the 90s, was the rise of pilgrimage. And I thought that was startling. I had grown up with it. As a French Catholic growing up in Detroit, my mom used to make traditional pilgrimages up into some holy sites, as they say, in in Canada. But my father, being far more secular, would take us on what he would call pilgrimages to places like Herman Melville's house, where he wrote Moby Dick. And because I'm growing up then in Detroit, the Motown, right, soul music and so on, I always had this double-edged sense that there was two ways of thinking about soul and spirit, the religious life, and of course, travel. And that was the sacred, traditionally sacred life, but also a sacred way of travel, but then a secular one as well. So I quickly put together a book deal and found out that there was a tremendous response immediately because this whole subject was moving around the travel industry, the travel business. How do we report this? How do we take care of it? What the heck is happening? And I found out quickly that in the late 90s and going right into our time now, pilgrimage to uh, the traditional sites in the three Levantine religions, as they call them, Christianity, Judaism, and Muslim faith, were all rapidizing. As a matter of fact, in the so-called Jubilee year in 2000, in an ordinary year, 3 million people go to Rome, 50 million people were scheduled (laughs) to go to Rome in 1950. It was astonishing. Then you look around, the pilgrimages in even to Mecca and Medina, to Jerusalem, to the Santiago de Compostela route. I know many of your listeners are very interested in that. They had all been rising. So then the question is how and why? And that's a great idea to write a book. So I began writing this book, and what makes it unique as compared to some of the more academic studies or the traditional sacred pilgrimage in which you are playing Gregorian chant on your headphones, (laughs) (laughs) and in some cases, flogging yourself. I'm serious. This still happens in places like the Philippines and so on. I wanted to open it up because I thought there was a much wider discussion. So I came up with this notion that a pilgrimage, as opposed to other forms of travel, 
travel for business, travel for entertainment, travel for learning experiences, which goes all the way back to the Greeks, by the way. A pilgrimage is a journey to a sacred place that is spiritually transformative. Mm. So it can be a sacred place. Let's say if you're Christian, you might want to go to Shark. Mm-hmm. If you are Jewish or Muslim, you might go to Jerusalem, Medina, Mecca, and all these other sites. But if you're a writer, in my case, a journey to Emily Dickinson's house in Amherst, Massachusetts, or to one of the seven James Joyce houses <laughs> in, in Dublin, are now commonly referred to as pilgrimages. I was doing research for a book on baseball a few years ago, and the great baseball broadcaster Ernie Harwell for the Detroit Tigers got me uh, permission to go into the Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame, but into the archives, deep into the basement. And while I was talking to the librarian, Jim Gates there, he kept using the word pilgrimage, and he didn't even know that I had written a book about it. But he was saying, you know, whole families come here. They drive for three days to make their pilgrimage here to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That's when I knew I was onto something. (laughs) (laughs) You initially set up this dichotomy or this pairing of of the sacred pilgrimage and the secular pilgrimage. In practice, do you see them being one and the same? The listeners might recall that I worked with Joseph Campbell. I was one of the writers on the movie about his life, The Hero's Journey. My first book was based on that film. So I worked with Campbell for many years, and I found that there is this ancient idea of what's called the monomyth, which is one story. And by the way, a word coined by Joyce himself, the monomyth of Leopold Bloom and Ulysses. One story. So, of course, there are nuances and there are different colors attached to this in terms of one's background and one's faith and so on. But essentially, at the, at the ground root, in an archetypal way, I think there is one human story. And that is the quest to find out, who am I? Who am I? Why am I here? And is there someone that I could talk to, a mentor, a spiritual figure of some kind, that could help me on this journey of mine? And so I used part of that model to organize my ideas in the art of pilgrimage. Certainly readers will detect that there is a kind of call to adventure, as there would be in the hero's journey. There is a meeting of mentors, spiritual teachers. There is a descent very often. I firmly believe now, after traveling all around the world for many, many years, if there isn't a dark night of the soul, if there isn't a descent into despair, into doubt, it's not a pilgrimage. It could be interesting, it could be educational, it could be fun, many, many, many things. But without the dark night of the soul, there's no spiritual inquiry going on. And that is one of the elements that makes a pilgrimage different from other forms of travel. I even used the same model when I wrote a book about creativity, soaking the creative fires, so that loosely speaking, what distinguishes tourism, and I'm not mocking it, and they shouldn't be held in counterpoint because... <laughs> I've met many pilgrims around the world, by the way, who are extremely self-righteous about oh, yeah. their tourists over there. Oh, and there's a traveler, but I'm a pilgrim. We have to be so careful about this. <laughs> so I, I don't want to pin one against the other. But what I want to say, really, is that the pilgrimage, uh, here comes a double negative. A pilgrimage is the journey you can't, can't take. The, the power of that double negative, in other words, we all, I don't care who you are. The Dalai Lama has faced this. I've I've met Aborigines in Australia who have faced this. You reach a crisis point, a crossroad in your life, and suddenly your friends can't help you anymore. Your spouse, 
the pastor at home, even your therapist. I have more therapists taking my trip than any other profession. <laughs> the pilgrimage is the journey that you have to take because you get off the bus, you get out of your head, you begin to walk, and that allows the mind and the soul or the spirit, depending on your persuasion, begins to free up. Something happens in a pilgrimage that does not happen on a typical tour or a family trip somewhere. Those are all good. I'm not saying never go to Club Med. I'm, I'm never saying, <laughs> I, I'm not saying don't go home for Thanksgiving <laughs> with, with your family. But the pilgrimage is the journey that you have to take if you want answers to a profound spiritual question. And is that the main reason then to go on pilgrimage, to answer a deep spiritual question, to get the answer to who am I? Well, generally, and again, language matters. Words matter. And if you say, I just want to wander, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing absolute about saying, I'm with fever, brown determination, I'm going on a pilgrimage, and so I am going to be spiritually transformed. <laughs> because Edwin Birnbaum, as some listeners might know, wrote an extremely important book in this whole discussion called Sacred Mountains. And he talked about the role of sacred mountains around the world as pilgrimage sites. And he has climbed Mount Everest and a few of these other sites. And what he found that was startling to him, and he told me when we taught a class together on sacred travel, I think it was at Esalen Institute, he said, you can go into the Himalayas and you can be trekking for a long time with Tibetan monks or Buddhist monks from different places in the world. And what you can find out is sometimes they're doing it by rote, R-O-T-E. Mm -hmm. It's just expected of you. You go, but then you fall into a kind of hypnosis. Again, the pilgrimage is different from other forms of travel because there is, a, as the French would say, a cri de coeur, a cry of the heart. I worked with The Doors on, on a book called Writers on the Storm, Jim Morrison and The Doors, and remember The Doors lyric, something's wrong, something's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> that tends to be the state of mind when someone leaves on a pilgrimage. And if you're not asking these questions, you can still go to Camino. Mm -hmm. You can still take a trek to Machu Picchu. But it's not necessarily a pilgrimage unless there's a profound spiritual question there. And the profound spiritual question can also happen if you're going to uh, Anna Akhmatova's house in St. Petersburg, Russia. She is arguably the greatest Russian poet of the 20th century. And when I went there years ago, I counted 15 different accents while I was there hmm. for a few hours. And later, I met with some of the travelers there having tea, Russian tea, or just around the corner. And every one of them used a version of the phrase pilgrimage. Why? I think the overlap between the sacred and the secular form of pilgrimage or sacred travel is that you're following in the footsteps of somebody or something you profoundly respect or even revere. So sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's not. I know someone might go to, <laughs> this is actually true, People make pilgrimages to Pele's house. <laughs> it's really a little shack in rural Brazil. Dirt roads, dirt floor shack where he grew up. But soccer aficionados from around the world will go. And what are they doing? They're walking in, the, in his footsteps to go to the site. They may not even use the word until much later. But the action is a pilgrimage because there's a profound effect that following the footsteps back to the place where something began. To me, that is almost always the overlap or the charged point. Why would we go walking in the footsteps of Henry Miller in Paris or walk around 
Prague, Czechoslovakia, in the footsteps of Milan Kundera or the patent office where Einstein worked in 1905. <laughs> because people actually go on science pilgrimages, by the way. Something happens to us, and Americans did not invent this. Get this out of our head, right? <laughs> There's a legend within 24 hours of Virgil dying in a cave outside of Rome in the first century, people were already walking to the cave. Yeah, one of the things that stands out to me is you're talking about following in the footsteps of someone specific who we feel a connection or, or resonance to. And I'm struck just as much by knowing that I'm walking in the footsteps of unknown hundreds, thousands, millions on the Camino. You know that you're walking in places along Roman Road that so many have. You are on church steps where you can see them worn down over time from all of the feet. There's something potent about that, even in the more abstract sense. It's abstract in one way, but it's also visceral and visible. I went to Rome with my wife years ago. I was lecturing on a ship, <laughs> of all things. And we got into the heart of Rome, but this, I had this urge that said, let's rent a taxi, then let's, let's walk for a while. I wanted to go out to the road that went all the way out to the sea for people who are arriving in Ostia on the scene and they would make their way in. We went all the way out there because I had seen photos when I was a boy of the beautiful black Stone, probably volcanic stone that was cobbled. So my wife, Joe, and I, we got all the way out there and we began walking just simply, as you say, walking on these footsteps. And you know what happens? Your imagination goes wild yeah. if you have an imagination. <laughs> so what am I thinking? I mean, oh, well, St. Paul. Okay, now I'm not pious Christian anymore in that sense, but there was something beautiful just knowing that St. Paul would have walked there. But you know what followed in the footsteps of that, so to speak? Spartacus. Hmm. <laughs> Kirk Douglas in the movie. <laughs> he actually filmed part of this on the Appian Way. And that's what's beautiful is Pico Iyer, you know the great travel writer, mm -hmm. Pico Iyer, he uh, once said, travel saves us from the life of the abstract. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? It makes a lot of sense. Some things can be beautiful, but when you find yourself there, I'm here. The Olympics, I believe in 1960, they had some of the athletes come into Rome following the Appian Way. So what is happening here? There's a psychological principle that Jung talked about, that Edwin Edinger discussed, that when you want to rejuvenate your life, you want to be inspired. You want to reintegrate. A lot of the RE prefixes help here. You don't go forward and just accumulate more and more and more stuff or more and more and more experience or stamps in your passport. Psychologically speaking, what you do is you go back. You go back in time. I was just in Detroit where I grew up just last week and I visited my father's grave. And I was supercharged by this, as sad as that was. But I'm going back in time, like you might if you go to Machu Picchu, or I would when I'm, I'm taking a group in the footsteps of Odysseus next year in, mm -hmm. in Greece. You go back and then down. This is part of the genius of the hero's journey. It's counterclockwise. It's not clockwise. The hero's journey, all stories, all adventures go counterclockwise. And that's why we feel this phenomenon of time stops. I was in Paris for three weeks, and it felt like 24 hours. <laughs> I was in Africa for six months. And I'm the royal I, the royal we, right? And it's because time stops when we're doing something that's transformative. And why? There was something, let's say, where the Cousinos came from, my ancestral point, where the Comanches would go on a vision quest to go back to where the ancestors supposedly came from. 
division quest in Australia. Or in the case of people walking to Santiago de Compostela, we're going back where in the mythology, and I mean this with all due respect, the mythology is this is where St. James landed when he took the boat, right? We, we know that. Well, even if you don't believe that literally, something profound happened there 2,000, roughly 2,000 years ago. Now, this is bringing it back to Pico and why this is exciting and exhilarating and not abstract. You go to these sites and something happens. I think on what Carlos Santana, of all people, told me, it's what happens on the cellular level. Hmm. For him, it's a musical pilgrimage. He might go to Kansas City or New Orleans, but when he goes to the places where great musicians were born, he says, you change on a cellular level. And I thought that was just astounding. Something happens that we can feel in the top of our head. We can feel it in our heart, maybe in our gut, but something is happening. And that's what compels us sometimes to walk. If you take the full Santiago pilgrimage, it's about four months, right? If you leave from the Tour Saint-Jacques near Notre Dame in Paris and you walk roughly 15 to 20 miles a day, but why? Why would we do this? Because <laughs> Shirley MacLaine did it. <laughs> I know some people have, but you know the novel by Joseph Heller, Something Happened. I believe this is at the heart of pilgrimage. We want on a beautiful way, a poetic way, we want something to happen. I want to walk through a few different moments in your book. As you said, you move sequentially through the process inspired by Campbell. And I'd just love to hear you riff on something, some aspect of, of each of those steps. Sure. The first one is in the pre-trip process. And there's this constant tension in pilgrim forums for people who are planning their pilgrimage to Santiago between planning and investing a lot of time on the front end and just going and believing that planning is going to interfere with the magic, the serendipity of the way. From your perspective, how important is the pre-trip process for pilgrimage? It depends on what you are hoping to happen. If you don't plan, you, of course you can have some fun. And of course there will be a little bit of magic and some serendipity, but it will all be an echo of your own head. If you don't know where you're going, nothing profound is going to happen. If you don't pay some respect to the place where you're going by reading about it, by talking to other people who have been there, something can still happen, but it's all going to be an echo of your earlier belief or a kind of new age expectation of meeting someone to fall in love with, or maybe you're going to bump into Paulo Coelho in a cave and he'll be wearing <laughs> a black cape somewhere. It's a different kind of travel, so I'm not mocking that, but it's not pilgrimage. I'm sorry. People have been organizing, thinking about planning pilgrimage for roughly 60,000 years, <laughs> because I date this all the way back to the Aborigines who have been going on walkabout, which follows the same model of the pilgrimage as the Christian model and all the ones that we're familiar with. And if you do some kind of research, some kind of preparation, it's respecting the people who've walked before you. It's respecting the land. And it's also getting out of your head. It's getting into the world. I think there's a line in the Art of Pilgrimage. It's about putting the soles of your feet to the sole of the earth. Hmm. So I'm playing with the language there, but it's also definitely based on Christian. We, we called the bottom of our feet, souls, as in S-O-L-E, because it's an echo of going into a cathedral. 
which is shaped like the cross on which Christ was crucified, according to Christian mythology, which I say with all due respect. So when you enter a church, it is as if, symbolically speaking, you are going into the souls of Christ's own feet. So you see, there is an absolute beautiful cosmology around this, and one does not have to believe this literally. You can believe in it figuratively. But without the preparation, the layers, let me put it that way, the multitudinous layers of a pilgrimage just won't happen. It can't happen if you're only thinking about fun and entertainment. I don't want to insult anybody there, but it's a New Age way of discussing something that is venerable. And we are in extremely narcissistic times. People are traveling now. I'm a travel writer, too, and I have a TV series on PBS called Global Spirit. So I film when I'm abroad, and I photograph, and I take stories, and I see more and more and more people on the road who have no idea where they are. They're there to shoot a few photos to post on Instagram, and this includes so-called pilgrimage sites. And so this book is a simple offering. Let me put it this way. It was published in 1998, so it's been out 21, almost 22 years now. And besides responding to the sociological phenomena of more people traveling in any time since human history, that's quite something, isn't it? That's mm-hmm. remarkable. There was a corresponding rise of people who are enduring what I sometimes call the Peggy Lee syndrome. If you remember, she was a torch singer in the 1950s and 60s, and she had a famous song called, Is That All There Is? Mm. And I hear variations of this on film shoots and my television show, when I lecture on ships, when I take people around on tours, I lead groups to Greece, Ireland, Paris every year. And I hear over and over again, I thought this was going to be more beautiful. (laughs) Or, hey, hey, it looked better in the video. Why do we just spend $10,000 to come here? I'm, I'm at the Louvre. I'm writing a book on the Venus de Milo, one of the most famous statues in the world. And I've spent entire days, eight to 10 hours in the room with the Venus de Milo writing about her. Every time I'm there, I'll hear something. I thought Michelangelo sculpted this. Why am I even looking at it? Nobody famous sculpted this. Why are we here? Why are we here? So all this is to say that without some kind of preparation, it's hard to find the depths of a place, to truly appreciate the beauty, the numinous aspect of a place. It's a word I I prefer to sacred. Sacred has a lot of religious baggage on it. But numinous means there's a kind of presence of the gods. There's a presence of something eternal or uh, timeless would even be a better word for it. My book, then, The Art of Pilgrimage, was originally a simple offering to help people get more out of their travel. Does that sound right? Yeah, absolutely. There are so many who travel, including making some of these these famous pilgrimages like Machu Picchu, not just the Camino, but Machu Picchu and many other sites. And then they come back disappointed. Oh, I thought people would be nicer. I thought the food would be better, (laughs) whatever it might be. So the book, it's not just my musing, but I went through all of the major faiths and secular forms of pilgrimage to find out the tips that we can do. These are simple. These are simple tips to not ensure that would be offering too much, but make the odds better that you will have a profound experience. And let's go a little bit further in that direction. There's another great quote in your book where you're describing a car crash and the line is, there were plenty of onlookers, but no witnesses. How can we see better? There's the preparation, but when we're in the moment, how can we see better? Slow down. 
there's a wonderful movement in Italy, and now it's spreading around the world, the slow food movement. There are now movements all around the world, slow conversations, slow dinners that we have together. Rather than look at our watch, take three selfies with the selfie stick in front of the site, and then dash on to the next place, nothing is going to happen. You can tick off the box, okay, I just saw the Parthenon, but the point is to slow down, close your eyes, take a breath, be there now, as Ram Dass said many years ago, it's, it's, it still applies. And then it's almost heresy in the modern travel world or travel business, but I suggest seeing less to see more. Rather than try to see the entire Louvre, go to one gallery. Maybe look at the work of one painter, one sculptor, one era. If you're going to Greece, go to one island, not six or seven. <laughs> It's something cultural. Not all people travel this way. I know this because I talk to and I interview people all around the world. Here's a funny anecdote. Years ago, I was traveling with a French woman around Paris, and we went to the Grand Palais for an exhibit, I think on Rodin. And she said, as we were walking around, looking at different tourists, taking photos and sketches and so on, she said, you can always tell the Americans. And I found myself, my hackles were rising. What do you mean by that? (laughs) I felt... Who do you think you're talking to here? So, okay, I'm game. What do you mean by that? And she said, the Americans are always coming here for self-improvement. Whereas we, the French, we travel, we even go to museums for plaisir, for pleasure. It stung a little bit because I recognized there was a bit of truth to it. I have not been able to forget it. That was 40 years ago or so. And I think my creative response, rather than being defensive about it, is this that we go to a place and we try to absorb what's there by slowing down and sometimes going out of our comfort zone and maybe spend a day sketching rather than photographing. Take an audio recorder and record sound walking around Vienna rather than just a hundred photos that we will look at once and then they disappear into the ether. (laughs) And finally, the last little suggestion, this is an easy one to remind ourselves of, I try to think about using the five-sense approach. I led a group years ago on a peace march in honor of Thomas Merton and Gandhi. It was from Merton's Hermitage all the way into Louisville, Kentucky, about 75 miles that we did in a few days. And I was leading hundreds of people from all around the world with a couple of other friends. And what we did that day changed the way I traveled. I just asked myself and I asked the people in the group to be aware of all five senses every day of our walk. So we listen closely for an hour. We have an intimate conversation while we're walking, right? We try to view in a way that we will remember. So you go through all, you take off the five cents. And after a while, it feels artificial for the first day or so. And eventually, if we do it correctly, it becomes a way of our life. And it's something that we can do at home as well. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you've come to see the facing of the setback, the descent as an essential part of pilgrimage. And I'd love to hear more from you on that. Why is it important? And how can we engage with that well? Because I think, especially on a walking pilgrimage, a lot of us suffer setbacks along the way, just the challenges of the body, along with the challenges of the spirit. And sometimes we respond to them well, and sometimes maybe less well. So how can we meet that? Here's one travel suggestion that I learned from my dear friend, 
the great scholar of religion, Houston Smith, who actually wrote the introduction to The Art of Pilgrimage, now that we're <laughs> talking about it. And he gave me some advice a number of times over the years. We did five films together. We worked on five different books together. He married me and my wife. He's my, <laughs> my child's godfather. A simple piece of advice. When you get up in the morning, if you are in a Hilton or if you are in an auberge on the Camino going to Santiago, rather than immediately reaching for your phone, or turning on CNN, or calling home, then a few minutes, two, three, five minutes, revisiting one central question. Why did I leave home? Why did I leave home? It's so primal. It's such an archetypal question. And it's far more effective if we do it in what they call the hypnagogic stage, which is halfway between sleep and waking. It's kind of a dream or a reverie state. You might even write down a few minutes. I, I left home because I need to decide if I'm going to change jobs. I am walking for two months on the Camino to decide if I really want children in my life. Profound questions that will precipitate profound experiences on a pilgrimage like this. And then if you can review that question two or three times in the day, what am I looking for? What am I looking for? Why am I here? Why am I here? That will help you get through the inevitable torments, if we can call it that, <laughs> of a real walk. I interviewed someone. I did a whole show on pilgrimage on Global Spirit. Pico Iyer was one of my guests, and we had a Peruvian anthropologist as the second guest. And she talked about how the pilgrimage in Peru is 80 miles uphill. <laughs> <laughs> uphill. And then to add to the pain, but also then to the relief at the end of it, the pilgrims put huge rocks on their back. Now, why? Why would you do something like this? Well, it's to be aware of our mortality, to be aware that it's possible to transcend our pain. In many cultures, I think the French have an old proverb about how travel is getting used to the pebble in your sandal. So... Mm. <laughs> Those are going to happen. We might get sick. Someone could steal our passport in the youth hostel. Things happen on the road. But those are all the outer issues. The inner torment, the inner struggle is the most difficult one, and that's the spiritual question that we're carrying. And if there isn't a spiritual question, I'm not saying stay home and don't make the trip, but it's something other than a pilgrimage, because a pilgrimage, remember the etymology in the book? I know you've read the book. It goes back to the Latin per agrum, and it means walking through the fields. Does that feel it's so beautiful? It's so primal. It doesn't say take a bus. <laughs> <laughs> it means walking because the actual movement of the legs and the feet moves something in the spirit. And that's why we're doing it, and not just watching a five-part series on the history of Spain. That's very illuminating, educational, but it's not the same as walking through. And so the dark night of the soul, as it's called in the spiritual literature, or the labyrinth, as it is described in the mythological literature, has to do with how you, how I respond to struggle. Some people give up and they go home. They just quit. Or some people get drunk every night in the hostels. Or some people get extremely angry. I've met a lot of angry travelers out there in the world. The world isn't like they expected it to be. Or they're disappointed in cultures. Or they miss home too much. I find versions of this line in travel literature all around the world that 
one of the most important and revealing moments of any profound travel is when you meet yourself on the road. It's phrased differently, but what I think, I believe what it means is you come face to face with yourself when the going gets tough. And you say, Dave, Phil, Barney, (laughs) what do you have to keep going? Do you have it? Or are you going to quit? Or are you going to become cynical? And the dark night of the soul is what reveals us to ourselves. So by the time you reach the cathedral in Santiago or the ruins of Machu Picchu or Stonehenge, one morning I left at 4 a.m. from Salisbury and I walked all the way to Stonehenge, 11 miles through the mist as the, the day was beginning. And that site of same this is before the fences were around Stonehenge, by the way. When I reached the site, I was all alone. I had three hours to myself there. And what do we meet? We meet ourselves. We meet the deepest part of ourselves. I, I hope we meet the best part of ourselves. <laughs> but sometimes it's also coming face-to-face with the part of ourselves we don't like and we have to reconcile ourselves to. That's true. And that's why we travel. And that's what makes it different than a boxed tour, so to speak. One other component one part of your process that I wanted to touch on is the role of the offering because you stress the importance of this and it's something I I don't actually see discussed very much in a lot of the writings about pilgrimage. What is the offering and, and why is it so important? A great question. Thank you. I'm a word guy. I have been since I was a kid. My family read books out loud together. We had an enormous dictionary in the living room. It could have been a wheel stop for a 747. <laughs> <laughs> and if we found a word that we didn't know, My dad would force us to look it up ourselves rather than just tell us. And I came to love that process. So in travel, I've been struck by the use of the word take over and over and over again, at least in the tourism business, which is slightly different, but it sets us up for what we're talking about. Often we say, I'm going to take a trip. And then when we arrive in a place, we say, I'm going to take some photographs today. Oh, sweetheart, you give me a minute here. I have to take a photograph. Or, hey, buddy, I'm going into the shop. I want to take back a couple of souvenirs. Versions of take are used, and we rarely think about it. On the other hand, what it reflects, if you look at this on a deeper level, is that most people, most tourists are, as we say in the lingo, are on the take. And I come to feel that's part of the resentment of people whose country, whose cultures we are visiting and sometimes invading, <laughs> we're on the take. And we wonder why when we enter a place, we raise our camera and people look away or sometimes spit. I've been spat at in different places in the world. Photographers talk about this all the time. Indigenous people, not just Native Americans, but indigenous people around the world talk about having their spirits taken when their photograph is taken. And we cannot mock that. There is something very real that they are recognizing. So if that's the case, and we don't want to be an invader, right? (laughs) We don't want to be colonial anymore. And we don't want to be ripping people off. We don't want to be cheating. However, there is that little, there's that screen every time we travel where we don't want to be a tourist. We want to be more than that. So my play of language in this And it's inspired by Boku reading on the history of pilgrimage and sacred travel. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of books about this, is the bringing of a gift. Just to bring a few gifts. It could be pencils, postcards, T-shirts. In the old days, it would have been CDs or cassettes. 
everybody has to choose their own to make it personal. The mere fact that you pack a couple of things in your suitcase or in your backpack, your satchel, whatever it might be, begins the shift from take to give, from tourist to pilgrim. In most traditions, it would be unthinkable to enter into a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a temple of some kind, empty-handed. It would be unthinkable not to bring a gift because the bringing of the gift, see what just happened? I slowed down. I took a breath. Bringing the gift, see what happens? It's even it's in the body. It's in the breath right there. It means I'm humble. I am saying thank you to God or the gods, to the universe, call it whatever you want. It says I am so damn lucky to be healthy enough, wealthy enough, even if you're traveling as a, as a backpacker, you still have more money than most of the people you're visiting, right? And I'm blessed, I am fortunate to have time. All of those bring together, and if we are not acknowledging that every day, we are, as Rumi, the great Sufi poet, says, those who do not praise daily are thieves. That is a great pilgrimage sentiment. So if you bring gifts, it could be a concierge. It could be a tea seller in India who gives you a free cup of tea. You say thank you with some kind of gesture, a thing that you leave behind. See, even in the language, see how that feels? We're going in and we're taking all the time. We're taking photos. We're taking people's time. If we say, I'm lost, can you help me? You know what? You're asking somebody for their time. So a pilgrim every day, by definition, is giving thanks. It's not taking thanks. It's giving thanks. Now, of course, in some cultures, we have to be very careful. So if you go deep into the Amazon or deep into the Sahara somewhere, we have to be careful about leaving something behind that could change, let's say, the power structure of that village. Anthropologists are telling us this. And again, this is why it helps to do some homework. I've had to clean up the messes of so many travelers who have gone just before me who did had no idea that they were violating local taboos or doing things that were so rude because they just said, hey, I'm American. I can travel any way I want. Don't tell me how to travel. So one good technique, you go somewhere, you go to Morocco, Tunisia, Scotland, just, you name the place, and you say, how can I help? What could I bring that would just help? I'm not saying you're doing this for spiritual merit, as, as the Buddhists would say, <laughs> But the whole shift, I, I promise you, I promise the people who are listening, the move from take to give changes you on an everyday level. It puts you in a mood, sometimes I call it the pilgrim mood. And the pilgrim mood says, I'm not entitled to anything. I am so lucky to be here. I'm so blessed. And I'm going to tell people every day that I am. And which is why, <laughs> by the way, pilgrims have been respected throughout human history. Even in the Dark Ages, when it was extremely dangerous to travel, even lethal, if you wore, let's say, the gallop shell walking from Paris to Santiago, what they called the foot pads or the thieves would generally, there are exceptions, but would generally leave you alone. They would just nod and say, you are blessed today. You are walking and I'm not going to rob you. I'm not going to hurt you in any way. So we have to ask ourselves, what do people recognize in us? We're traveling in a kind of in a numinous zone when we're on a pilgrimage. We're doing something that is good. We've mostly been talking about the art of pilgrimage, but I also had the chance to read a shorter book from you, The Oldest Story in the World, which I really enjoyed. 
And in that, you describe stories in a way that reminded me of your description of many aspects of pilgrimage. You talk about the desire to be carried away, being transported across a threshold, to have proof of other realities. Is that purely coincidental, or do you see some consonance between the pilgrimages we walk and the stories that we tell or that we're drawn to? Beautiful, beautiful question. Thank you. And thanks for finding an overlap between those two books. Here's one way to approach it. One of the classic pilgrimage books of all time is Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And in there is a story about how one of the pilgrims goes to the Tabard Inn on the south bank of the Thames in London because he knows that the innkeeper there has been entertaining pilgrims going to take the walk to Canterbury for many, many, many years, and he wants some advice. And this is something I ask people to do if you're going to take a serious trip, one that you hope will change your life. You go to somebody who has been there and you ask a few questions. You tell some stories. So in this case, in the Canterbury Tales, the pilgrim asks the innkeeper, what should I do? And the innkeeper, I think this is pretty young. It's so psychologically astute. He says, the innkeeper at the famous Tabard Inn, and there's a sign there still on the wall where this inn was. He tells the pilgrim, Find two strangers on your walk to Canterbury and tell your story to them. Tell them who you are, where you came from, tell them something about your family, and then tell them what you are looking for. And afterwards, after you have visited the famous relics and you are heading home again, find two more strangers to tell your story to. And now tell them what happened. What did you see? What did you feel when you touched the relics? Did you get a blessing from the priest? Did you have your faith restored? And I have been thinking about that ever since. The power of the story, both in everyday life, the power of the stranger, which is an archetype, by the way, in spiritual literature and also travel literature, as long as publishing has existed or storytelling has existed. Often the stranger is the one who could reveal to you the truth about your life because it's not a family, a friend involved. The stranger is a kind of archetypal mirror. And it's also a way of getting out of your head, out of your own experience. And in this way, this does connect in a humorous <laughs> way, I hope. I have the distinction of bringing the Grateful Dead in to do the music for our film on Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey. And I became friends with Mickey Hart, the drummer for The Grateful Dead. And at one point, I brought him together with my good friend, Houston Smith, who writes the introduction to my book on pilgrimage. Why? Because Houston has the distinction of bringing the Tibetan singing monks to America. They're the ones who can hold three chords in their throat at the same time. One monk sounds like he's a trio, half, a, half an orchestra. He's <laughs> so stunned Mickey Hart, who is a bona fide musicologist, besides being a drummer, that we brought the two together. And they appeared on the Michael Krasny show on KQED here in San Francisco. And at the end, Michael Krasny, the great interviewer, asked, what does a drummer for the Grateful Dead have in common with Houston Smith, <laughs> a historian of religion? How did you guys come together? <laughs> Houston says, we're in the transportation business. <laughs> Isn't that brilliant? And I, I think that's what brings a lot of my work together as well. Religion is a transportation device. We can be transported into the past, deeper into the present, but also into the future. 
thousands of years can come alive when we are in a beautiful religious ritual, including pilgrimage. But art is a form of transportation. So many writers, artists, musicians constantly talk about transport. Miles Davis was in another cosmos during that performance, right? And the very word sport, pilgrimage is athletic, right? You have to walk. Yeah. Right in the middle of transport is the word sport. And that's no accident. Either performing in an athletic manner or watching sports is what? It's transportive. Stories at their best are still our most efficient transportation device. You tell a story, you listen to a story, and you stop time. You are transported. So this is one of the subtle gifts that I hope my book, The Art of Pilgrimage, can do, where I'm encouraging people to get out of themselves in their isolation, or even traveling with a spouse, which can be so beautiful, but telling your story, encouraging other people to tell their story is what is memorable. Because almost without exception, when you talk to people about their personal memories, what really happened when they were traveled. Don't tell me about your five-star hotel. <laughs> Don't tell me about the five-star meals. Who did you talk to? Did you have any memorable conversations while you were walking, when you were sharing some wine out of a Boda bag <laughs> in an auberge somewhere? <laughs> Stories are what bring us together. Now, do you remember the line that I reprised like a song lyric throughout the Art of Pilgrimage, which I found in an old pilgrim's guide? And I've gotten more letters or queries about this peculiar line than any other comment in the book. And by the way, I average at least one real letter, not just emails, but handwritten letters or postcards from the Art of Pilgrimage every day of my life from somewhere in the world. Wow. They come from Uruguay, St. Petersburg, Antarctica. <laughs> I got a package of six letters from Australian nuns on a pilgrimage to Borobudur. They all wrote to me together just a couple of weeks ago. Wow. <laughs> anyway, yeah. The line in the book is this, stranger, pass by that which you do not love. That line is worth a PhD. It means an inexhaustible amount. For me right now, it has shifted over the 20 years that the book has been out. What I'm suggesting is that even on a bona fide self-announced triumphant banner in front of you pilgrimage, <laughs> I am from Oregon and I'm walking to Santiago, there will still be Boku distractions. The world will pull you off. The news will pull you off. Your determination, your sight. Stranger passed by that which you do not love. It doesn't mean don't have fun. I'm not saying that. But can you keep your eye on the prize? As the great leaders of the civil rights movement used to say, do you have your eyes on the prize? Eyes on the prize. Otherwise, we get pulled off and suddenly we can arrive in a place and we have that, is that all there is moment? And I want everybody listening to have the time of their life. You offered one line from the book, and I'll wrap up here by offering one more line. There's this great exchange where this question is raised. Someone taps your shoulder and asks where they can find God. What's your answer? And I was hoping to get your answer. In the moment. It's right now. The story that I tell in the book is I'm in Chartres Cathedral at the entrance of that 900 or so year old labyrinth. It's the archetypal labyrinth, which has helped inspire the labyrinth movement. 6,600 
hundred labyrinths have been built all around the world based on the work of Lauren Artris from here in San Francisco. And years ago, I was standing right there at the entrance to the Chartres Cathedral Labyrinth and an old Frenchman who reminded me of my grandfather in Canada, Charlemagne Cousineau. Isn't that a formidable name? <laughs> Charlemagne Cousineau. Charlemagne, as we used to call him. This man, this old Frenchman, was a spitting image of Charlemagne. And he turned to me, and in French, he said, can you tell me where I can find God? And it was such an intuitive moment that blazed in from nowhere. And I just, I pointed to the center of the labyrinth. And he just, ah, so, so. And turned, and he did the 11 turns of the labyrinth. And that has become a kind of profound symbol for me about that question, that every day is a bit of a turn through the labyrinth. We have to enter in, if we get out of bed, right? <laughs> we get out of bed, you enter the labyrinth of life, and you make the 11 meanders, the 11 turns, and somewhere in the middle of the day, I hope for me, and I hope for you, and I hope for all of our listeners, that there will be a center of the labyrinth, and we will find something or someone divine something timeless in the center of our everyday life. Phil, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. A real pleasure. And it's, it's a double pleasure to meet someone who really respects the work and who has prepared so profoundly and thoroughly. So I thank you for a wonderful interview. It's funny what sticks in one's memory. When I think back on my first pilgrimage, I see myself sitting on a rock, just off the road leading uphill from Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port, my right quad spasming uncontrollably. I'd never experienced such a thing. I remember getting the last spot on the floor in the mayor's office in Larissa and watching later pilgrims confronting the shock and disappointment of needing to taxi on to Pamplona for beds realizing how close I had come to the same position, and wondering what it would have been like to face that on my second night on the way. I remember the approach to Nahara, walking through a driving rain across a rickety bridge, nothing more than loosely linked planks, really, over a surging river. It had been nearly a week of constant rain, and pilgrims shared reports in the albergue of snow in Burgos. Several bailed and took off the next morning, and I can't say that I was walking with a ton of confidence. I remember walking 35 kilometers into Via Franca Montes de Oca, far longer than I had ever walked in my life previously, and then lying flat on my back in a hotel in the trucker bar, staring at the ceiling and stuffing my face with magdalenas, aching and wondering what the hell drove me to do this. I remember how badly my shoulders hurt in the final few days, including a 10-minute break I spent across from a closed bar in Lavacoya, not wanting to take off my pack because the jostling would be agonizing. Later that day, I can still vividly picture the ceiling of my room in Santiago, where I spent two hours waiting for the pain to go away so that I could actually go see the town. To be clear, those are not my only memories. I have lots of positive experiences that I remember fondly. But in some ways, these are my most cherished memories. Every time I had to face despair, every time I had to confront adversity, I was really staring down my own fear, my lack of belief that I had the capacity to complete this pilgrimage. I never really believed that I could make it to Santiago 
until I arrived in the Prado do Obradoro. In The Art of Pilgrimage, Phil quotes the Dalai Lama, who said, quote, If you utilize obstacles properly, then they strengthen your courage, and they also give you more intelligence, more wisdom. Phil then observes that the root of sacrifice, the Latin sacrificium, literally means making sacred. The obstacles, the sacrifice, those certainly bring great depth and meaning to many of our pilgrimages. That's all for this episode. Many thanks to Phil Cousineau for speaking with me. You can find him at philcousineau.net. The site has information on his books, his trips, his films, and the many other things he's involved with. The Art of Pilgrimage remains very much in print. Phil's television show, Global Spirit, can be viewed on PBS in the U.S., and there are tons of clips available on YouTube. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast's Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at DaveWoodson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.